Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only one thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars, a saving of three hundred dollars only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, welcome to another edition of The Other Hand. We have felt for some months now that every time we have a podcast that it's full of interesting stuff to talk about and uncertainty. And obviously that has been ratcheted up significantly over the last 48 hours or so. Uh, the situation in the Ukraine is continuing to get worse. There's a huge, There is obviously a huge amount of uncertainty here because we don't really understand the real motivation of President Putin you know, does he want to install a pro-Russian government and replace the existing regime? Or does he just want to uh, secure control of some of the eastern border regions in order to prevent Ukraine from ultimately joining NATO? Um, So God only knows what his real motivation. I'd be interested in your views on that. But um, from an economic and financial market perspective, it is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, The world has been consumed for some time now with COVID-19 and we have discussed ad nauseum and the markets are obviously preoccupied with the legacy of COVID, supply chain problems, strong demand, inflation, central banks, what they're going to do on the interest rate front, uh, the emergence of significant inflation. And uh, these are all of the things that have been preoccupying us now for some time. But I think in the last 48 hours, it is safe to say that all of these issues have been uh, totally replaced by what is potentially a much more serious political, economic and military um, episode in the Ukraine. 
Um, we've seen dramatic volatility on markets, be it commodity markets or equity markets, over the last 24 hours or so. And that volatility continues today. Um, there's a huge question now over what does this mean for inflation over the coming months? And I think you'd have to say uh, that it is going to push inflation higher because of the impact on the energy front. Um, but the big question then, of course, is how do central bankers respond to all of this? Because we've seen the Bank of England increase rates twice. Uh, the Federal Reserve has been set up to start tightening its official interest rate policy in March next month. And um, we, we, the two of us have debated ad nauseum what the European Central Bank will do. I guess I had a view prior to this week that the European Central Bank would probably tighten by the end of this year. And, and that certainly is, is something that started to be priced into the markets in recent weeks. You disagreed. Um, so <laughs> that, there's a lot of uncertainty there. There's a lot of stuff up in the air. What's your perspective? Well, I've been reminded on several occasions over the last few days about 9-11, that awful day. And I was working in the city of London in the financial sector on that day. And I was tasked after the planes hit the towers with standing up in front of a room, uh, one of those big financial district dealing rooms, but probably about 500 people all sitting there, unusually quiet. Um, speaking to them was, was a commonplace occurrence for, for people like me. Uh, but mostly people wouldn't pay that much attention and would be jabbering to each other and into the phones. That day, there was a, a dare I say, a deathly silence. Uh, they were hanging on my every word. And it was probably the time when I stood up at that microphone when I had the least to say. I, I began my remarks by saying that on a day like this, when uh, so many people are dying and the implications are far more profound than mere finance, it seems, I said, almost crass to be talking about the financial market and economic implications of what we've just seen on our TV screens. And crass is definitely the word uh, in this regard, because it seems to me that, that the implications of this are going to last for a very long time and will be much broader than the financial and economic, market, economic consequences uh, just as back then. I'd start again by going back to 9-11 and say that my instincts, and they are only that because obviously, as you, as you rightly said, it does all depend on what happens next. But my instincts are to say at this stage that the the consequences for all of us, not just in the area of finance and economics, but politically and socially and for just humanity, this is worse than 9-11, in my opinion in terms of its potential for harm, uh, and certainly in its potential for it to change all of our lives. And I think that, that there are many different dimensions to that, um, both political and economic. You rightly focus on the energy price thing um, as, as the focus of our attention in terms of what happens in the short and medium term, certainly, and maybe even the longer term. We've seen gas prices, natural gas prices, uh, go up a lot uh, in the wake of all of this. Uh, they've come down and they initially went up a lot. Oil prices 
exceeded $105 a barrel for the first time since 2014. Uh, for a while, um, futures prices for na natural gas in Europe went up by almost 70%. Uh, that came back a bit, and gas prices, as we speak, are off a little bit this morning. Going back to that remark about things being crass, at the close of the US stock exchange trading yesterday, traders on the New York Stock Exchange floor started chanting USA, USA, which was quite a remarkable thing in and of itself. I don't know why they did that. Uh, this is not a football game or any kind of sporting event. But what had just happened, what I suspect must have led to them making that strange chant, was one of the biggest intraday rallies in US uh, stock market history. The market had been down on the open, down quite heavily, and then just shot straight up. If you shorted gold and bought the NASDAQ at 9.31, you'd have made a fortune yesterday because gold prices then went down and the NASDAQ just went through the roof. The starting point would be, again, a crass cliche, which is that people always want to buy the rumor and sell the fact. And so it has proved here, the market just rallied in the most extraordinary and uh, unexpected way. There were similar gyrations in, in bonds. The US Treasury bond market, through the course of the day, uh, behaved as if interest rates had just been cut by a quarter of a point, by 25 basis points, as we say, and then later on reversed that cut. Again, an extraordinary move, both in equities and bonds. The, the issue, of course, is what's going to happen to oil prices and natural gas prices, energy prices generally. And that has as much geopolitical significance as it does uh, economic significance. One of the big, many, many, many big political decisions that has to be taken over the next while by all countries, but not just, but not, but in particular, Germany is whether or not they're going to continue buying over the medium longer term energy from from Russia and that that has huge consequences whichever way that decision goes because what I think happened yesterday uh, was that the markets decided incorrectly in my view it's not often you'll hear me say that I think markets were dead wrong in what they were doing us in any particular time period I have more respect for markets than that and very little respect for, for my ability to interpret how they're moving. But I do think they were wrong yesterday if the following interpretation is correct. I think they've decided that Russia will invade Ukraine, will take over Ukraine, Putin will achieve all its objectives, and then it will be business as usual, but Russia, but Russia will be in control of Ukraine. That will be the only difference, and that won't make much difference to anybody apart from the poor Ukrainians. I don't think that's the case. I don't think we can possibly know what's in the mind of Putin. It may well be that that is what he intends to do. And if so, then so be it. But the idea that there would not be any more consequences for the rest of us, even from that relatively de minimis projection for what happens next, I don't want to minimize it, but I do think that's the least of our worries. I think that in the extreme, you could posit that there is some kind of a deal, implicit or explicit, between Russia and China, that this is a dry run for China taking back Taiwan, and that the two of them have decided, the two of them being Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, to see how the West reacts to Russia's takeover of Ukraine. If it goes the way it looks like it's going, which is that the West doesn't do very much, 
because I want to be absolutely clear with my view about the sanctions that have been implemented by the West, which is that they are they don't amount to very much, Jim. They really don't. Um, despite all the bluff and bluster about them being the biggest sanctions in history, uh, Russia A will be have been preparing for them for a long time, and B they don't really amount to very much. I congratulated West Germany on our last podcast for postponing certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Um, but I note that that's all it, it was. It, they had suspended, was the correct word, certification. And uh, there is a cynical interpretation that that suspension will be temporary and that they will go back to buying Russian gas when all of this, um, from a non-Ukrainian perspective at least, is all over. So between this being a prelude to an invasion of Taiwan through to what is Putin's next move. Um, I've heard military types talk about the start of World War III if Putin puts a single boot on a NATO country. I could suggest a completely different alternative, which is that the moment that Putin does go into another country that this time is a member of NATO, that NATO will in fact do nothing because of that World War III point. So I think that there is an enormous amount of uncertainty. That old cliche uh, happens to be particularly true. It's true on steroids at the moment. But I do think that this thing has the potential to get very messy very quickly. And the implications and the events that will follow from all of this are going to take years to play out. What I think has happened is that I hope has happened is that the West has been shaken out of its complacency, that the relative peace that has been relative peace that has been established since the, the end of the Second World War, that that's now over and that lots and lots of things have to change. I think that every country is going to have to examine its own response to this. I do think that we do. We should stop buying Russian gas. Uh, that says that we need to really adopt properly, you know, on steroids alternatives. That means stopping the nimbyism over wind energy in places like Ireland, re-adopting nuclear energy in places like Germany, um, that disastrous policy of Angela Merkel's to abandon the nuclear option. I think countries like Ireland should think about nuclear. Uh, I do think that countries like Ireland, and I'm going, this is, I know the, how controversial this is going to be for Ireland, but I think countries like Ireland need to consider its uh, neutrality stance and whether or not neutral countries like Ireland should think about joining NATO. I'll shut up there, Jim, and hand it back to you, because there's, there's a lot there. Um, pick any one of those threads and see where it goes. Yeah, if you, if you look at the sort of economic significance of Russia, um, the world's 11th largest economy, um, EU imports of natural gas, 41% come from um, Russia, um, Ireland doesn't get any gas directly from Russia, but obviously with the disruption to that gas supply, with gas prices having risen and likely to rise further, one would have thought uh, that will obviously feed through to higher gas prices in this country. And um, 27% of crude oil imports into the European Union come from Russia. And indeed, uh, Russia and the Ukraine together account for around 30% of global wheat exports. So that has obvious implications for global food prices and around 80% of um, global sunflower seeds actually emanate from the Ukraine and Russia. So you can see as part of the global supply chain um, on the energy side, on the food side, and of course on the metals and ore side, um, I think 
something like 40% of global palladium, for example, um, is produced in Russia. You can see Russia is an incredibly significant part of the global supply chain with the threat to the supply of all of those things, with the prices of those things likely to rise. You can see the inflationary implications for the world. I guess this transitory notion of inflation that central bankers have had um, is continuing to be lengthened. It, it is highly likely, you know, that inflation is going to remain at elevated levels for the foreseeable future. And I know we can get back to it in the context of that sort of dire political prognosis that you have just provided. It is crass to talk about economics, but uh, it, it is um, unfortunately important to continue to focus in on what's happening on the economic front and the implications of that. Um, I think central bankers will really be scratching their heads at this stage because um, there was always a risk in increasing interest rates in a global environment where the legacy of COVID-19 was still creating economic fragility globally. Um, And if you superimpose on top of that, uh, this Russia-Ukraine situation, what that means for inflation, but I guess more importantly, what it actually means for global economic activity. There is no way possible you could conceive that this is good for global growth. It is going to damage global growth significantly. So increasing interest rates in this sort of environment uh, does not look like a sensible strategy. Well, looking at the futures market for where interest rate bets are going, we were prior to this thinking about the United States putting up interest rates by half a percentage point uh, next month. And that appears to have gone. The markets still expect a quarter point. Things are moving around very rapidly as we speak. That appears to be the situation. So markets are agreeing with you, Jim, that uh, there's still going to be some monetary tightening, but not as much as previously, Uh, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, they just don't know what the overall macroeconomic consequences of this are going to be. They agree with you that the income hit that consumers of energy are going to take is going to reduce economic activity. That will help to ease overall inflation pressures. But the direct inflation consequences of the energy price rise that we've seen on top of all of the other energy prices rises over the course of the last year or two are go- mean that inflation is going to stay higher for longer. And, and that has to be true. Yesterday, when gas prices were again going through the roof, I saw estimates of what that would mean for UK domestic energy household bills. Uh, the way in which we do things in the UK is unusual, and there is a lot of chatter about the something called the energy price cap, which many people even in the UK don't really understand because it, it is an abuse of the language. It's not an energy price cap. It doesn't limit the amount that any individual household can spend on their natural gas uh, or electricity needs. Um, what it does, it caps the unit price of electricity. And so the more you consume, the more you will pay. It's just that the unit price of what you consume is capped. And so what is presented on the news and in the media is is the average household energy bill, given where the cap actually exists at the moment. And where that is at the moment is the average household in the UK spends about £1,200 a year on its energy bill, given that cap. Given energy prices yesterday at their peak, if they persisted, it was calculated, somebody did a quick calculation yesterday, that that average household bill would treble from October this year onwards. What happens here 
obviously will happen pretty much everywhere because to a greater or less extent, household energy bills ultimately are determined by what's happening in global markets. So if they're going to treble here, Jim, they're going to treble there. Now, that is if the, the energy price stays where it was yesterday. And of course, that we hope doesn't doesn't come to pass. But that that's the kind of hit that people are talking about. Now, that kind of number going up to in excess of £3,000 a year from uh, 1200 at the moment is a huge bite out of everybody's income, particularly those people on average or below average earnings. It's, it's enormous. That will mean that they obviously have far less to spend on other things. So all forms of other discretionary expenditures will be cut back at those sorts of energy prices. So the economic hit, I think, would be massive. And if energy prices stay at anything like those sorts of levels, I think that uh, it's quite possible that we go back into some kind of uh, recession uh, situation for the business cycle. And um, we don't really have the tools at the moment, on conventional economics anyway, to deal with that uh, because uh, the ability of governments to spend their way out of that recession or that growth slowdown at best is limited by the fact that they're so indebted and budget deficits are still so high. Ireland probably has a wee bit more flexibility in this regard because you're roughly in balance at the moment. But you would have to be thinking about running deficits again at a time when you would obviously have been hoping to uh, either be in balance or even running small surpluses. The ability of central banks to fight this is very limited because, as we know, interest rates uh, basically, apart from the UK, haven't gone up anywhere. So they really don't have the scope to cut them. They could go back to quantitative easing, buying government bonds. But uh, again, central bank balance sheets is the jargon that we use are already bloated. They already have bought an awful lot of government debt. So it, it's going to be very, very difficult to be an economic policymaker. Mention Ireland's fiscal situation. Actually, we had a deficit of close to eight billion last year, and uh, it is likely that there will be a smaller deficit run. So we're not quite at balance, but we also have a debt to GDP ratio about 105% of gross national income. Uh, so the, 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 there, there is a significant fiscal constraint on Ireland. Go, going back to the comment you made about the paltry nature of the sanctions that have been introduced, um, I just want to clarify... Did, did, did you agree with that, Jim? I totally agree with you, absolutely. But I just want to clarify a few things and try and dig in a little bit that I don't fully understand. In the whole energy market, um, basically the European Union between April and October, builds up, replenishes its stocks of imported gas, okay, having used them during the winter. They and didn't then, last year. That's one of the key problems yes, that, that we is, face at that, the moment. That is one of the key problems, absolutely. But but assuming this year was going to be a relatively normal year, that you know, from April onwards to October, they would build up gas. The sanctions do not actually damage gas supply at the moment. They don't impact at all as far as I understand it. That's one of the reasons, or perhaps the reason, why this famous uh, sanction that was mooted by the British to ban Russian financial institutions, banks in particular, from something called the SWIFT okay, network. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yeah. Now, the SWIFT network, I think, is is Bel a Belgian-owned thing, um, which enables banks to make cross-border payments to each other. And ultimately, when you're exporting and importing, obviously, that involves an awful lot of cross-border payments. So if you stop uh, people, banks in particular, and therefore people who deal with their transactions through banks from 
from SWIFT, you won't be able to pay for the gas or indeed anything else that you import from Russia. And if you import a lot of food from Russia and Ukraine, and Ukraine is now part, is going to be part of Russia, perhaps, um, then uh, how are you going to pay for these gas imports? So they've been carefully, uh, the British have been rebuffed very carefully by the Europeans and the Americans, actually, uh, in terms of their desire to kick the Russians out of SWIFT, I think precisely because the Germans in particular, the Europeans in general, want to continue to import stuff, gas in particular, from Russia. And if they can't pay for it, then Russia ain't going to supply it. Uh, it could well be, of course, that Russia uh, decides not to supply any gas, which is a whole new ball game. Um, they still are. Gas is still flowing to, to Western Europe, albeit at, at lower rates than, than previously. Uh, but this is where, you know, this is where it really gets very crunchy that um, if if Germany, for whatever reason, is unable to import gas from uh, Russia, if Europe is unable to import gas, then we are in a, you know, an incredibly serious energy crisis, which um, will have gas bills for all of us, um, it probably in excess of what I was talking about just now. And, and possible actual physical, not just a price problem, but a physical delivery problem. Because at the moment, as we have discussed, there aren't any obvious alternatives. They will be scrabbling around now to get them. Uh, one, of, you know, one of the things that we're going to have to do is import an awful lot of liquefied natural gas from anywhere that's willing to supply us. Um, Germany just doesn't have that ability to do that. It doesn't have the physical capital infrastructure, the ports, the, the, the processing terminals, to do it, um, they, they they're going to you're going to have to drill more holes in the North Sea. They're going to have to find other sources. Uh, one of the things that happened after the 2014 annexation of Crimea is that Saudi Arabia cooperated, we think, with an American request to drive the oil price down. Uh, something like that might happen again to ameliorate things, but it it it's it has the capacity to be very very difficult indeed. And at the moment, if I was a Ukrainian, I would be looking at what Germany in particular has done, but Europe and the United States and Great Britain and say, thanks, guys, uh, but no thanks. You, you've, you're all talk um, and you haven't put your money where your mouth is. Bring, bring it back to, um, I, I guess, a, d a domestic situation here in Ireland. Um, you know, I've been asked lots of questions over the last couple of days about the economic impact here. And uh, there's a number of ways of looking at it. One is obviously true, the impact it has on inflation. And we mentioned the impact on energy prices, particularly gas. And I have to say, I agree 100% with you. And I, I, would have agree, I would have said this well before what happened this week, um, that Ireland needs to drive on with its alternative energy agenda. And the notion of nimbyism preventing wind farms, both onshore and offshore, uh, you know, that has got to change. Uh, we've got to make hard choices. Um, I think nuclear is something that should be discussed more here because um, I think every EU country will have to wake up now and realise that they are going to have to try and create energy independence because uh, if they don't, uh, what's happening with Russia at the moment is just going to be a perennial problem. In terms of Ireland's trade exposure to Russia, um, it's pretty small. You know, last year, we exported 627 million euro worth of product to Russia directly. 
and um, our total merchandise, that's merchandise exports. Our total merchandise exports last year were 165 billion. So what's that? Roughly 0.3, 0.4% of our total exports go to Russia. That There is a caveat to that, and the, the whiskey industry here has highlighted that. Uh, the whiskey industry sells a lot of whiskey into Russia, apparently. But I couldn't find whiskey in the official statistics uh, because apparently we do it through third countries. So, you know, if if, if that tr- trade is damaged, it, it, it will impact on that sector. On the import side, we import around 598 million euro worth of produce. And um, it's the biggest one there would be mineral fuels and oils and fertilizer. So that fertilizer piece, of course, you know, would damage food production further. But it's uh, and then, sorry, the, the, the final trade exposure here is there apparently 3.2 billion in service exports to Russia. So these are computer services, professional services we sell into the Russian economy. Uh, that is more significant, but um, I guess the economic impact wouldn't be as great as on the goods side. So Ireland's overall trade exposure directly to Russia is very, very limited, but indirectly, um, it obviously has the potential to create a serious impact. We're here kind of talking in a very theoretical bubble, I guess, at the moment, because, um, you know, presumably this trade is going to continue to flow in both directions for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and, and that's the, the, this, the significance of the pea shooter sanctions that uh, everybody has been supposedly putting on over the last few few days. So, uh, and that's the bet the financial markets are making. As we speak, financial markets in Europe are, are echoing mirroring what the United States did uh, yesterday and going up a lot. As I say, I think that that's a mistake. That's not thinking through uh, what might actually happen next. I think a lot of these trade flows in future are going to be threatened. And and that's as much because of the the politics of this. Different countries are going to have to make lots of different decisions about the politics and the humanity of this um, that are going to have economic consequences. So it's going to start with the political and work its way through to the economics. And if the economic consequences of those political decisions that I think countries have to take now are going to be bad, then it could well, as the markets are saying, feed back to those political decisions not being taken. But that will set up further problems down the road. What do I mean by that? It goes back to what I was saying earlier on. If it is, If it's right that this is just a problem for Ukrainians, a big problem for Ukrainians, but not for the rest of us. That doesn't mean that it's business as usual, because I think it's, it will encourage Putin to do more. Um, does he really want to reestablish the Iron Curtain? If so, then does he go all the way to try and get East Germany back, let alone the Baltics um, and bits of Poland and other uh, countries like Hungary uh, and others? What does it mean for China and its ambitions to, uh, in general, uh, become dominant in Asia, uh, if not globally, and in particular, its desire to take back Taiwan, which has all sorts of echoes of the Ukrainian situation? Britain has to decide whether it's going to continue to launder Russian money through London um, or not, with the consequences that will flow for that for London's financial firms, uh, accountants, lawyers, 
who wittingly or unwittingly are essentially agents of uh, the the Russian oligarchs who launder their money. Well, you could certainly say the same about Dublin, I suspect. Possibly. I know less about that than I, I do about about uh, about London. The, the politics of this are endlessly uh, complicated. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, in general, one of the peculiarities of Western politics over the last number of years is the way in which extremes of both left and right have been fans of Putin. Nigel Farage, for example, the leading Brexiteer here in the UK, is on record as saying a number of years ago that Putin was the leader that he admired most. I know that members of Sinn Féin in your country, Jim, or at least one prominent member of Sinn Féin, has expressed positive remarks about Putin in the past. We could go on about this a lot, but the, the best example I can give you about, about what this might mean in terms of change or things not changing, but either way, if things change or if they don't change, there are going to be implications. There's um, a U.S. author who is now trying to be a U.S. senator. You, you'll have heard of him. I think you read his book. J.D. Jim, Vance. Called J.D. Vance. Yes. And he wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy. And Dre- made, made dreadful, into, dreadful book, Chris. Awful. Made into an equally poor movie, I think. Yeah. He's on record recently as saying that he didn't really uh, care very much for the Ukrainian situation one way or the other. And only, I think, this week staged a vault fuss in which he said, oh, maybe I should. Cynics say that's because he's discovered that there are 80,000 people of Ukrainian heritage in the constituency that he wishes to become a senator in. Uh, But more generally, these people like J.D. Vance, who have decided that supporting Trump and Trump-like policies, including admiration for Putin in the case of Trump, maybe that isn't the way forward anymore. But either way... You, in U.S. politics, the Republican Party now has to decide whether the, the strands of Republican thinking led by Trump that have been supportive of things Putin, is that the way forward or not? And if they do, if they think that that's still the right way to go, that will have massive implications. And if they don't, that will have massive implications. So it's going to change. And I think that's, you know, when we talk about our attitudes towards energy, energy production, how we consume it, how we produce it. When we think about our politics, uh, the way in which uh, our politics have developed in recent years um, in the UK because of Brexit, we haven't talked about the Russian links to the Brexit campaign and to Brexit campaigners, uh, the way in which Russian money is integrated in UK society, US politics. Whatever happens, Jim, and we can speculate about the way in which it will change, it is going to change there with huge implications for all of us. And we could talk about that all day. And I think that probably on future podcasts, we should p- unpick one or two of those threads to see which way it might go. But what I would say to any listener is that the idea that this is going to be a contained problem over the long term is very wrong headed. This is going to change all of our lives in, 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 in what I think are going to be deep and profound, but highly uncertain ways. Chris, I did um, politics as part of my degree back in the 80s. And uh, w- one of the modules we did was uh, nuclear politics and Greenham Common and all that stuff was very um, topical at the time. There was a concept called mutually assured destruction, uh, which described the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and it basically meant that they both had intercontinental ballistic missiles aimed at each other. And if one pulled the trigger, the other responded and they both blew themselves off the face of the earth. So it was that sort of uneasy tension that 
maintained peace and stability between the two great superpowers at the moment. Um, it would appear that we are back in that whole MAD phase again. And we, we see Putin coming out yesterday saying that if the West intervened here, and I presume he meant militarily, um, that they would see stuff they never imagined happening, uh, which presumably is the nuclear threat. So uh, I, I, I would totally agree with you that, um, you know, the last... 20 years of our history has been torn up over the last few days. And um, the, the, the world is, you know, we're, we're really back to where we were probably in the 70s and the 80s again into a sort of a Cold War type environment. And uh, that is that will have huge implications for all of our lives, unfortunately. So the and of course, of course the, the, the implications at the moment are very much with the people of Ukraine. And I think not to be crass, I think that we should finish with a salute to uh, the Ukrainians that are standing up and fighting and a salute to the Ukrainians that are simply suffering. And I'll offer one small story that's emerged from the conflict so far. There is in the Black Sea uh, an island called Snake Island. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard about this. A Russian warship approached this island yesterday where 13 border guards were stationed on this small uh, lump of rock. And the warship, Russian warship ordered them to surrender uh, themselves and their weapons. The radio exchange is available on, on, on Twitter. And you can hear, apparently, obviously in a different language, I think, the, the Ukrainians saying, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. And then all 13 border guards died. Extraordinary, yeah. Um, so I think... I think that we need to remember that people are actually dying as a result of what we're talking about. And I see this morning that the two Klitschko brothers, the boxers, um, are enlisting in the Ukrainian army. They're going to fight. Yeah. So there's amazing stuff happening. Jim, let's call it there. And no doubt we will be returning to some or all of this many times in the future. Yes, a, a very evolving story. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.